Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. I have the inverse role today of journalist to another journalist. Uh, I have Liam from Rude Baguette, uh, Francis' startup blog here as a guest, and I'm going to really enjoy being able to, to effectively take the role that you typically take, Liam. Definitely. Um, maybe the best place to start, as we, as we usually like to do, is from the very beginning. You, you you naturally have an American accent because you are from, yeah. from that part of the world and in spite of the fact that you're really focusing on France and we'll get to that part of the story in a bit. But tell us a little bit about what you did sort of after college and, and sort of the origins of, of the person known as Liam. Yeah, so, um, so my parents were tech geeks um, in, in their own sort. So I grew up in the Silicon Valley. I uh, spent 21 years there, went to school in California and uh, studied mathematics uh, and I also studied Latin and ancient Greek uh, because why not? And um, when I finished school, I didn't want to spend all of my life in the Silicon Valley and it was very obvious looking at my friends that if you start your career in the Silicon Valley, nothing will ever make you leave. It's like starting your career in the auto industry in Detroit. What would, you would just spend your entire life in Detroit. So I, I sort of, I just instinctually, instinctively just ran away. And I ended up in uh, France, first in the southwest of France, and then uh, at some point I saw a tech startup that was hiring, and I thought, I know tech. And I got my job by basically saying, I'm from Menlo Park. And they said, okay, come come do what you want to do. So you definitely you, you whipped out the California card. Immediately, immediately. I mean, it wasn't, I think the first time I ever did it, you know, I would subsequently use that a lot as I started writing, but the first time I ever did it, I didn't even realize it was a card. You don't realize... Now you do, but we, I didn't realize growing up in the Silicon Valley that I was growing up in the center of something. Mm. I just thought I was growing I thought everywhere was like that because you're a kid and your yeah. world is the 10 miles around your house at most. Um, yeah, I thought it was normal that Google was down the street from us and that everyone's family was a geek and it was a very normal thing. You didn't necessarily study tech, but you knew yeah. tech. And... Um, so what was that startup then? What was that first startup that, that you worked for? Yeah, so I saw this startup one day that was hiring. It was the former co-founder of Deezer, big competitor to Spotify yeah. uh, based in France. And uh, he had left the company uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, and he was starting something up new. And he said something like, I want to do Hulu meets Pandora meets Netflix. And I thought, I know all three of those things. That sounds cool. Let's see what happens. And I, and I just sort of went from there. And I, and I like that even to this day, as I look back on that, it's the most product-driven description of a company in France or even in Europe that I've, that I've seen someone give, just saying, we're take these three things, imagine what would happen if you mix them together. Um, and so the company uh, was trying to do a recommendation engine for video. I watch a video, what should I watch next? It was a lot like, uh, there were like three different things. There was something that came out of YC at the same time that we raised money. There was something that came out of Berlin. It ended up not going that way. It turns out that video would inevitably go down the same route as television, which is Netflix is a channel, HBO is a channel, YouTube is a variety of, YouTube is what? Uh, public access television. It's the equivalent yeah. of you know the mass everyone. Uh, it turns out that online video has gone the same way, but that we didn't know that in 2011. I don't think the market had figured that out yet. Um, and so I started working for them and I was, an intern, and, and, and then uh, all the interns got fired and I got hired. Um, so I ended up multiplying my salary by four, which went from nothing to something. And I was basically just doing everything you would need an Anglophone to do. And at some point, we raised money uh, from Fred uh, Destin, yeah. who's now at Axel. Yeah. Um, and we didn't meet then, but we would, we would meet later. Um, and he had invested in Deezer, so he invested in, in the Deezer Founders' new company. Um, and I remember the first article that ever came out, I still hadn't started writing yet, but, you know, we had stuff in national newspapers in France, and then there was Gigo. And nothing was more important than an article in Gigo. 
Uh, and, and even the French engineers read it. And I thought that's so weird because obviously I'm reading Gigo. That makes sense. I'm American. But even the French engineers in our team, and it was like 20 engineers and like the CEO and me. It was the whole company. Uh, they cared more about what the, what was being said in English about them than in French, which in hindsight makes a lot of sense. But I hadn't yet made the connection that people in France were reading about tech in English, especially in the startup scene. Yeah. And that's when I started blogging. And so I started writing just about what I was seeing. First, I wrote about my thoughts on working in a startup in Paris, but quickly I switched over to here are other things happening in the startup scene. Mm -hmm. uh, there was things like Deezer ended up raising 100 million uh, down the road. Um, a company called Exilead got bought by Dassault System for 150 million. Uh, really quickly, Blablacar raised uh, one, 1 million euros. They were still called Covoiturage back in the day. Um, and, and I just started writing about what was going on. And so after about five minutes of writing that ended up, I ended up leaving the startup because they wanted to move to San Francisco and I didn't want to go home. Yeah. And but I really liked. I was doing some freelance stuff on the side to pay the bills, and I thought, well, why don't I see what? Why don't I see where this goes? And I just thought I'll write about the French tech scene, and then maybe I'll find a company that I want to work for, and I'll go work for them. And so that turned into the Rude Baguette. Um, and we started getting other people who wanted to write with us, um, and it and it sort of it, it just became this idea of what if we wrote about France like it was not France? What if we wrote about it like, not like it was Silicon Valley. I didn't like the idea of being the cheerleader for an ecosystem. And I don't think anyone would say that we're the cheerleader for France. If anything, I think we're the most critical. Um, but we do it because I think it's important to be critical of an ecosystem for it to grow. Um, arguably, I could even say that London lacks a lot of criticism today, and so does Berlin, and so does Stockholm, and so does sometimes even New York. Um, lacks criticism about what's going on because you can't grow it. You know, No one believes you when you tell the truth no one believes you when you say something positive if, if you don't ever say anything negative. They have to yeah. agree with, if they agree with you on the negative points, they'll agree with you on the positive points. Otherwise, it sounds like you're just looking for the bright side of things. Um, and so really quickly, we decided that we wanted to cover f technology in France and the technology economy uh, in the same way that, say, Bloomberg covers the financial market in Japan. Right? What do they do? They write about it in English because most of the people doing business there in the financial sector in Japan are doing it in English. And they write about it with one step removed. They're not, they don't have a personal investment in the success of Entity Dogomo. They, 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 they don't care if SoftBank does better one year or the other. They just want to make sure that anyone who's reading them feels informed about what's going on. Um, and so that really quickly garnered a lot of attention. And while about half of it came from France, a lot of it came from here in London, which is why I come here today, which is why I come here at least once a year. Um, and really quickly, San Francisco picked up. Um, and arguably, a good amount of that was the French population out there. But we know that it wasn't because really quickly we saw Dave McClure tweeting us. We saw, we saw Mark Anderson tweeting us. And, and we saw that people who do business in technology, they, France is a big market. There's no, there's no global leader that you use today that isn't a global leader in France. It, and arguably the same thing can be said about the UK or Germany or yeah. anywhere else. It just so happens that it's 70 million people and not a lot of people know what's going on there. The ratio of GDP to transparency in terms of media is, is very high. So maybe, maybe what we can do is take a, um, I, I know that we're going to cover a little bit about how the Rubiquette has, has sort of evolved over the years, but also some of the new, new stuff that you're going to be mm -hmm. launching. But maybe we can take a tactical pause and, and dig deep into France. I, I think you're probably one of the most qualified individuals to talk a, of France and the ecosystem as a whole, since you, you talk to every constituent mm -hmm. of it. Um, maybe let's, let's for, for the audience, Either for think about the audience as being one of two, either somebody who is thinking about expanding into France and mm -hmm. wants to understand the sort of idiosyncrasies of, of France, or somebody who is uh, probably within France thinking about a, a startup, starting a startup there, and what's that look like? What 
what would you say is the if you had to just maybe go through uh, the, the typical points that you would you would bring up in a panel uh, about France and what makes it unique? What what would those be? What makes it unique is really hard because I'm not necessarily sure that there's anything too unique about France or London or anywhere else. Um, so I, I'm a mathematics major. Uh, I'm not a writer. I just know how to put a sentence together, and it turns out that that, that works. That's the minimum required amount of stuff uh, to to be able to write a blog. Um, France's mathematicians and engineers blow me out of the water every single time. That company I worked for in 2011, I've I know exactly where every one of those employees is today. They're all at amazing companies doing amazing stuff. If they want, they have a job waiting for them at Google, but they don't, and they go to other startups. Um, and I think that that has turned into in the past five years, a very engineer-driven success. Even if you look at things that would be considered more design innovation like Blablacar, if you meet the CTO of Blablacar, he is arguably the heart behind what makes that product successful. Okay, so we have inherent talent stemming both from the educational organizations there as well as some of the manufacturing history that that the the country has. Okay, so how about regulatorily speaking? Oh, I mean... So, like I said earlier, I, I don't feel a need to defend the French... Go- I'm not the French government. Yeah. And I, so, I, I don't think it's a smart decision for a, a company that isn't already... If you're in France, it's not that difficult to flip. Therefore, do what you know. Don't give yourself unnecessary hurdles in the beginning. Most people say don't even incorporate your company until you need to. Yeah. So, if you're already there, don't start thinking about where should my subsidiary be? Should I double double Irish sandwich, Dutch hit, or whatever? No. Just, just set it up. But if you're not in France, I don't see a wise argument to relocate there. Because yeah. I don't see a wise argument for anyone to relocate anywhere unless they feel like wherever they're going to is necessary. Yeah. Um, and so... I think the regulatory environment has one particular advantage that I think is underexploited, um, but less so in the in the past 24 months, which is they cover R&D costs like crazy. You can basically make money if you run a very well-designed R&D lab. You can make money off it. You can double up on tax incentives to actually make more money off an employee by, get, by getting 110% of their salary deducted. Mm-hmm. And so it is a really good place to hire engineers. And, 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 and that is coupled by the fact that what I said previously, they're good, but more interestingly, they're loyal. And if you ask any successful French company uh, or non-French company with a French office, French employees are loyal, yeah. which, which, which is a huge contrast to what's going on in the Silicon Valley where you, everyone's basically looking out for how can I use this job to piggyback better stock options on the next job. Does that, I mean, that loyalty is great on the one hand, but what, what can you comment on sort of the, the nature of the employment law? in France. How's that evolved over the years? It's, it's, so it's getting better. I mean, like, it would be stupid for me to pretend that it's an amazing setup. We, uh, we employ people. I've had no, I've had no problems so far. I'm yeah. sure I'm not the, the ideal use case. Yeah. Uh, I think the news this week was the head of HR of France getting his clothes ripped off by employees when, he annou- when they were announcing that they were laying off 3,000 people. Yeah. Uh, the bigger interest in that story is that none of those people will be arrested. Um, that is not, a, that, that is a tolerated. Um, so that probably that probably undermines the relationship between employee and employer yeah. uh, in in France. That's a very nice uh, s- some summarization. Um, it's not difficult to hire, and it's not that difficult to fire. There's a lot of notions about that. Basically, the system works like this: when you hire someone, you can impose a trial period. During that trial period, you can fire them like you're an American. That trial period can be three to four months, and it can be doubled to six to eight months, and it usually is. So after eight months, if you don't know whether you need to hire or fire them, 
I think you have bigger problems as a startup. I think startup, it, you know, when we talk about France and employment laws, we tend to say, oh yeah, it's so hard to hire and fire. But in no other market do we talk about, yeah, the reason I'm in London is because it's so easy to hire and fire. No, it's it's so hard to hire because I can't find anyone and I need the best talent. Yeah. And so I think French startups have a lot, have the same problem as everyone else, which is it's hard to hire. You don't worry about, you're not firing your data scientist. Mm-hmm. I don't think any, I don't think there's been a firing in other, other than massive layoffs and closing of the company in, in the tech industry in a while. Everyone, the, the harder part is keeping people around, which is why I think it's more valuable to have loyal people, even if it's difficult to fire the mm-hmm. bad ones. I would say don't hire bad people. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of sort of that path of, of myths, uh, of French myths, you know, we, we've all been watching the, the Uber story mm-hmm. play out. Yeah. And, and not necessarily to comment specifically on Uber, but to comment more broadly on established organizations or established uh, uh, unions or anything like that. And wh- what is starting a startup that disrupts change in France look like in light of something like Uber? Well, uh, Uber wouldn't announce this publicly, but one of the most profitable cities in the world is Paris. So if, if they're getting beaten on, they're not getting beaten on financially. They're not getting, they're not getting hurt as much as they might let on. Yeah. Um, so, that, so that's one thing. Um, that's specifically on Uber. It's ter- I know the two guys who are currently on trial right now. It yeah. sucks. They're great guys. I don't actually... I, I, I've read the, legis- the, the, the court case. I don't understand how, that, how, how whatever's going on comes back to them. Yeah. Um, France is going through a, a thing right now. France is going through a midlife crisis uh, on, a, on a country proportion, right? Their, their current government structure is only 70 years old, and, and I think they're dealing with a lot. I, uh, uh, I think they were late to, to enter the global discussion. Um, whereas Germany 20 years ago, they had their crazy revolution and they hated the prime minister who forced all the change yeah. in the labor laws, but now they love him, uh, her, her, uh, France hasn't done that yet. Yeah. Um, and one of the reasons that France's president was elected was because people thought if we elect a socialist president, we might actually get someone who could be a double agent and help get those changes. And some of those things are being put into play. Uh, in the same month as this Uber thing is going on, you have the Minister of the Economy saying government officials don't work enough and they're not paid well, which is the same as like a sheriff saying all my cops are lazy and racist. Yeah. It's a, it's a, that's a big deal when 52% of the country is, 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 has that same contract. Yeah. Um, and so, so I think France is going through a thing. Whether that means that right now probably isn't the best time or maybe it is the best time to jump into that change and be part of it. Um, Uber has a great relationship with France. I mean, it's a, it's a tough one, but most, most consumers like it and most people are willing to defend it. Um, and, and that plays a, a big role because it's still a democracy. Yeah. Um, but France is going through a thing, un- unarguably. They're, they have a stagnant economy that, you, that is unavoidable. Um, and a lot of that is due to overregulation. And they're being slow about pulling that regulation down. Yeah. Um, and that sucks. But most of that doesn't that doesn't impact ninety percent of what I see. That impacts GE and Uber more than that impacts yeah. uh, workable, workable. You know, it, it's not. It, it's. It, I don't think enough start. I think a lot of startups might think they're disrupting something that aren't that aren't necessarily disrupting something as sturdy and regulated as as they might think. So. Yeah, I mean, to to some extent, if we bring this back to to Rubaget, you have been in this ecosystem now for five years and seen some major change. Oh. What has been your your ability to influence that and change that? How has 
How have you adapted the organization over the years to sort of capitalize on that or actually be a catalyst for that change? Well, as one journalist to another for this temporary <laughs> situation, I can tell you that is much there are conversation, you know, I think from the outside looking into media, it looks a lot like media dictates the conversation. Um, but that's only because you're only seeing the conversations that are happening and not the conversations that we wish were happening. Yeah. I have learned, I learned years ago that we cannot control the conversation. We have to find that subtle balance between what the audience wants to read and you're beholden to the audience because if they don't read you, you don't get to accomplish your goal and using that, their desire to read you to get to, to make conversations start or at least create an opportunity. Mm. Um, and that's very hard for every Uber versus taxi conversation that we have helped. Um, you know, we wrote about some of the first protests and we saw our article taken by the New York Times, LA Times, Guardian, BBC, yeah. everything. And that was great. I was really happy to see that because in, in a different world, I don't think that conversation would have gone outside of France. Um, but for every one of those, there's nine others where we don't, we don't see that conversation echoing because people don't want to hear it because it doesn't reinforce their preconceived notions on a lot of things. It's very hard to get people to uh, engage on, let's say, a social sharing level and, and really encourage a conversation that goes against what they've thought before they read it. Yeah. Um, people prefer news that reinforces their ideologies. And so you, you kind of have to trick yeah. them sometimes into learning something. You know, we sometimes do clickbait article titles just so that we can inform people about stuff. Yeah. And it's very frustrating to have to, you know, you have to rework your title so it fits in a tweet, but it also has a number and somehow mentions Apple. Uh, you know, <laughs> and, and just so that someone, just so that it'll go to the top of Hacker News, just so that you can let people know, hey, by the way, like an Apple store got robbed or whatever it is, whatever, whatever bigger picture there might be, or there's a whole regulatory environment that's changing, you know, and it's, and it's very frustrating. And, and we're not the only ones to do that. Not even we as in Rude Baguette, but beyond media, you know, government has to do the same thing when they want to get a point across. They sometimes have to go, look what Amazon's doing. It's terrible. By the way, we just want to help bookstores out. You know, they have to they have to point at someone evil so that you'll pay attention to them and yeah. make an enemy just so they can do it. So, um, but that aside, so so I, I don't think we have as much control as, as it looks like the media does. Um, but that aside, it's um, it's been nice to... We have seen that, you know, when we first started, first article, if you go all the way back to the first article, the first comment is, this is great, but why don't you do it in French? I, I, will ne I will never delete that comment and I'll save it for the rest of the time. And it's been nice to see how people have adapted to what we do and how it's become not the standard. I don't think we're the standard for news. I just think that people expect news about France to be in English now. Um, and, and that's been nice. You know, we do, we now do about uh, an event every single month on a different vertical, on a different topic. Every time it's in English, whether it's a French person or not, we don't even look at nationality. It's not, it's, 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 yeah. it's a nice, it, and, and that is where I think we've effectuated change. I think we opened up an opportunity for a different dialogue to happen. Um, and we, we wouldn't exist if people didn't want to have that. And so the only reason we were able to do it is because people wanted it. Yeah. So, so, so it sounds to me like you, you just kind of covered three or four different things that, that you have taken in as philosophically to shape what Rubeget is today. Maybe tell us a little bit more about these ideas that you have currently for the future, some of the tech platforms that you're building. And yeah. So, I mean, um, so we launched in 2011. I'd, been, I'd already been here for a year. And about a year and a half in, people started wanting to give us money for things, very honest things. A, a company launching in France wanted to leverage our audience to, to make awareness. 
um, about what they were doing, and and, and we liked that, and we you know we liked that idea that people came to us, and it wasn't, and they identified that we had something and they wanted it, and that's when we started thinking about the idea of a, of a media company. I know, I don't know the journalism industry, or the publishing industry. This is about the time I started started calling up the AFP and getting meetings with executives and just saying, can you tell me how this works? Hmm. Um, and we realized really quickly that most of the motivations, the instinctual reasons that people either read us or wanted to work with us was because they thought we were smarter than them. I don't mean like I'm smarter than you. I mean like we had knowledge and they didn't have it until they read it on our website. Um, and that's the same for a lot of media. Um, but we felt like the monetization methods that were made available to us, um, the tools that existed in the, in the practices in the industry did not line up to that. It's very indirect to the way media makes money today. It can go as far as we write about this topic and we also do consulting on this topic where you basically hire two completely different people, mm. which, which sounds ridiculous, but then you look at the advertising-driven business and we hire journalists, they produce things, we hire advertising people, whether it's developers to do automated or an ad sales team to do direct ad sales, and they do a business by leveraging this. Mm. You know, loss leader, and then, and then you have someone whose job it is to pay their salary, a journalist's salary, and then make a margin and then pay the CEO's salary because that guy's got to make money too. Yeah. And so it was always indirect. Even, even with what we do today uh, and what we've done for the last 18 months, which is to build out uh, a, a nearly seven-figure events business, uh, it, you know, it's largely indirect. I have a whole separate team that works on events. Um, and increasingly, as the events team has grown, we've seen the need to do marketing, which has turned into a budget for journalists because the journalists create marketing passively. Yeah. Um, but it's largely a different business. And so we constantly looked at how could we make it so that journalists could pay for their own way? And journalists could be thus scalable. I could know that by employing another journalist, they would pay for themselves. Or if they didn't, I would be able to measure it and get rid of them. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, part of that is done, you know, you've, we've seen the successful audience-driven models um, have worked with that. You know, Forbes had this idea of you can contribute as long as you contribute at least once a week and we pay you out a margin of what you earn for the site as a whole. Yeah. And that was their idea. They knew they were never going to lose money and they could scale up the content or up or down as much as they want. And they knew people wanted to associate themselves as an expert. Um, but we wanted to look at the idea of saying, you know, there is a problem, which is <laughs> BuzzFeed spends, you know, 12 minutes on, a, on an article. And, and, you know, the New York Times is spending 12 hours on, on Syrian refugees crossing, crossing the Mediterranean. Mm. And who's getting more clicks? Hmm. Who's making more money? Yeah. And, and that's an issue. So, so the first issue was how do you make a journalist as efficient? How do you make a really good journalist as efficient as someone who's doing no research, no interviews, no fact checking? no substance, no analysis. Uh, and then the second side of, is there a value beyond the content itself that could be valuable? And so that's something where we got really excited. And so about 18 months ago, we said, okay, we need to pay the rent. And we started building an events business. We hired uh, the woman who's now our COO, um, who, is, who had, or I, I went to one of the best conferences in France called France Digital Day, the first edition. And I said, this thing's amazing. I asked my friend who organized it. He pointed to the woman who was working in the coat room and I went to her and I said, what are you doing? And we hired her nine months later mm. and worked with her between then and, and that nine months. Um, but at the same time, I also went out and said, we need to do stuff around making journalists better. And, and we knew it had to do with taking what journalists knew and, and, and putting it into data form. Because if you can put it into data, it's searchable, it's visualizable, it's, re it's retrievable. Uh, and we just constantly pecked at this problem. Um, and then about nine months ago, we had this sort of oh shit moment. Uh, some of it had to do with seeing Slack success. Some of it had to do with seeing what other people were doing in different industries, uh, talking with talking with different journalists and seeing their problems. Mm. Um, and we came up with this project that we now call Omniscient.
a mission. Yeah. So we had this idea. One night I was, I was explaining to someone how, you know, if you wanted a journalist from the New York Times to be as quick as a journalist from BuzzFeed, they would need to have everything they know and everyone they know at their fingertips, right? I want to write about Seed Camp. Okay, so I know Carlos. I, want to, I need to know when they were founded, how much money they raised, mm. uh, the last events they've done, the last five press releases, the companies, who's raised money. I need to be able to aggregate all that data together. And that's not a lot of data. It's actually very minimalist. You guys probably have it across five Excel sheets, mm -hmm. which in cloud server numbers is a couple cents a month. Mm. It's not a lot to hold on to. Um, and, and for a journalist, that's hours of work for me to go in, for, you, for me to find the person at your company who can give me that, for them to go through and decide which numbers to share, to cross-reference, okay, what have we already published, what have we not publishing yet, what do I need to, there's just so much there. And that's, that ends up being 80% of the work of a journalist, even though 80% of the value of a journalist from a reader perspective is what comes after that, which is the insight, the analysis. Yeah. And so we thought, what can computers do to make, what can technology do to make journalists faster. Yeah. Um, and so that's where we started working on this project called Omniscient. And a friend of mine said, oh, you want to make journalists omniscient? And I said, yeah, that's yeah. exactly it. So is it ready? Yeah. So we started, so we start, so we'd already launched a product last year, which some, which about 25,000 people used and yeah. it was called RudeList. Yeah. It was, it was a joke on Crunchbase meets yeah. Rude Baguette meets AngelList. And it was everything that Rude Baguette knows searchable in a database. It was great. And we had friends from Algolia, so we built it on top of Algolia. Uh, we wanted to make sure that everything was factual, so we used LinkedIn Connect, which is no longer an option because LinkedIn's API is awful. Um, and we basically said, everything that we know will be here. So that, because the problem I had was people would say, okay, so are there startups in France? And I got that question, I still get that question today. Yeah. And, and I always said, go to Rude Baguette. And that was great, that was a plug for myself. But the problem was if the last article I read wasn't representative of the ecosystem as a whole, it wasn't really a, a, a substantive yeah. source. The homepage isn't a great source, it's just the most recent activity. Yeah. And so we wanted something that was data-centric, and so we built this thing called RudeList, which is, uh, was live until about last week when we took it down because the servers we were using for it are now allocated elsewhere. Um, and it was a database of everything we knew, but we ran into two problems. One was, we don't know everything. So New York Times knows things that we don't know. So we thought, well, what we really need is for New York Times and, 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 and French Web and, and Tech City News and everyone to use it at once. And the other side was we needed to make it so that every time a, a source talked to us, every time a press release was sent, that it came in through this channel. Because the problem was we were only really keeping track of the stuff we ended up writing about, which was both a duplicative process yeah. where we'd write the article and then submit data, which is pretty much what everyone in the ecosystem does today, except they read the article and then retype it. Um, as stuff that you would have coming in and you'd store it and you'd have it. Exactly, which is the real value. because that, And that's yeah. really what you look for. When you write about a company, you don't just want to write about whatever they just sent you. You want to write about that in the context of the last six months. Yeah. And you want to say, hey, this metric's interesting. Can I get every one of this metric for the last 24 months and I'll pop it into an infographic? Yeah. And, and so we started looking at that. We said, okay, we need to build something where the way that sources and journalists communicate with each other is data is data centric. So we take a tactical pause there and, and talk about sources and talk about yeah. how startups interface with you. Maybe, could you comment a little bit on not just in terms of, of, of the new product you're going to be launching, yeah. um, but in terms of just general? How can how what would you recommend for how startups should interface with with a journalist so that they can get the most out of of that relationship? And then of course feel free to plug in how they can do that in the context of omniscient. Definitely. So well, there's two sides. One. I believe that journalist, a journalist's role is to be the most accessible person. So um, I, as soon as Twitter launched there, you can, anyone can DM you, anyone can DM me today. My email's on every one of our articles. Um, 
if you write any, if you write an email address to anything at rudebaguette.com that isn't already pre-registered, my email address is the catch-all. So if mm-hmm. you if you write something to doodoo at rudebaguette.com, it comes to me, and I'll probably answer it because I don't really look at what you're sending it to. I just look if it's relevant or not. Um, and so, I, you know, on the one hand, from a, from a purely can you reach me, I believe it's I, I don't like the idea of that you see journalists complaining of I have twenty hundred emails a yeah. day, and that's your job. Your job is to filter through noise and find signal. It'd be nice if that was a little easier, and we, that there's the plug, but that's part of the job. Part of the job is to receive more information that is necessary. Because mm. uh, if you were only receiving signal, it would mean that someone else had been doing the filter and you mm. were just a byproduct. Um, and so, so there's that side. The other side is we particularly, I've always thought of journalists as investors. Uh, I just consider us investors who invest with words and, and maybe an audience as opposed to money. Um, and so my thing was always give me the ammunition I need to, to justify my investment. It's an investment of time and an investment of attention, but give me the ammunition I need. So we're, da- we're very data-driven. You know, if someone wants to show me, we don't do product reviews. That's the first thing. I've never reviewed a product. Uh, the only way we started doing that was at one of our events where we let new products launch on stage. Yeah. Uh, and that's an event that brings a thousand people together every three months. Um, and that's very easy. We just say anyone who wants to launch something and you want us to review it, apply here. And if we select it, you'll launch on stage. Uh, and those companies have gone on to YC Tech Stars, Seed Camp even. Yeah. They, they, we generally pick good companies because we only have to do it every three months. Um, so we look for metrics. I want, give me the ammunition. The same thing investors are going to ask you for. I want, I want to see growth or even just a sign that you've hit a minimum threshold of interest yeah. to, to validate your product. I want to see who you're working with. I want to know why you matter. I want to know where you where you worked before. Not all of these things. I don't need to check every box. I just need enough to go on my gut. I am as I am the I am the seed investor. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and journalists have an obligation to be first to write about someone. So yeah. I like being the first to write about someone. Not the first to write about a story. The first to write about the company. Yeah. I want to look back and say I wrote about Kovacjaj before yeah. they were Commuto, before they were blah blah card, before they were valued at 1.6 billion. Right. You know, I was playing poker with the CEO in my apartment four years ago. That's the story I like to tell. Yeah. And and there's a value to that. There's some ego value to journalists, and that's something that I've picked up on in the last four years. It feels good to be able to say I wrote about them before people knew it. You know, that's my that's my hipster side. So richness of information yeah. and timeliness of of the story are key attributes of what make it interesting what is like the surefire way other than like through all caps on the subject line what's a surefire way of somebody not getting any attention from me considering the fact that this is something that many other people do TLDR and I write it in all my emails if your email is too long I don't finish it I don't have time I can't make the I, without knowing in advance what the, what the substance is of the article, I can't go through every five paragraph email. Mm. It's just the risk to return ratio. You know, I'm, I, I agree that we need to look at everything and I don't give up on those long emails. Mm. Um, I just go, I just write back and I go, this is really long. Why do you think I should write about you three sentences? And that's what I'll write. It's quick for me and it saves you time down the road. And, and it's not not response. Mm. Um, the other thing is going through a PR firm. Uh, I love PR firms for big companies. When I want to talk with Samsung, I go through my PR firm. That, mm. that they're very good. Mm. But Samsung's too big for me. Like the idea that I would call up anyone at Samsung other than the few people that I know really well through years of relationships is is absurd. But if you're under, I don't know, 
I was with TransferWise. So how big is TransferWise? I email the CEO and I go to see TransferWise because he emails me. Yeah. So that that's how that works. And I and you know I'll speak to the PR people. I know that there's a PR team and I'll talk with them if I yeah. need something. But I want to feel like we're in this together. You know, if you need me, then I need you. And so that's a big thing. Like it's got to be you. Yeah. Um, and it's got to be short. It's you can always follow up later. I will follow up with questions. But yeah. I think every story can be pitched in three sentences. Yeah. And in the, in the context of mission being rolled out, what, what would that look like, that relationship? Yeah, so, so there's a lot of really cool... Th- I mean, people will continue to send emails to me and they'll continue to send uh, tweets to me and Facebook... I hate Facebook Messenger. There's another way. <laughs> my answer to every Facebook message that doesn't fit in that little mini pop-up is yeah. just my email. And nice. that's it. That's all I send. You'll figure out what you need to do. Um, so, you know, as we, you know, as we were building Omniscient, we knew we needed to build a tool that could both help journalists manage the signal-to-noise ratio, but also allow for them to be discovered and allow for journalists to, reach, to be reached out to. Mm-hmm. And so one of the first things we built was the Pitch Me button. Uh, and right now it's really basic. Anyone can send one message to a journalist. Mm-hmm. And, and after that, you have to wait about a month to be able to send it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but already, as we're, as we're trying that out, we're seeing journalists saying, yeah, I, I want to receive one message, but I only want facts, or I don't want any PDFs. Or it needs to be less than 140 characters, right? And, and this idea of giving one place where a journalist can say, this is how I want to be pitched yeah. and giving them the ability to customize that. That was a huge, that was a huge must have. Uh, and that was big. Um, the other side of it was accepting the fact that the, where news happens, where journalists learn about news is always going to be multiple locations. And mm-hmm. so a big thing for us was how do I take a, a press release from an email mm-hmm. and turn it into an actionable item inside of Omniscient where I can use that as a source for my article? Um, and, so, and so that's why people can forward emails directly inside the, the inbox of the product, which we call a newsroom. That's why tweets can be embedded inside the product. That's why information can be pulled in from almost anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, was, that was a big part, which is we don't pretend that on day one or day a thousand that it'll be the only way that people communicate. However, as we increasingly work with journalists, we'll look at, okay, what do you need when you're at an event? You have your phone, but you're not going to be taking notes. So down the road, it makes sense that we would be an audio transcript. Mm -hmm. And then maybe we would snatch some of the awesome voice-to-text software that's coming out and try to create a text transcript. And then in order to ensure that, we can push it back and say, is this what you said? Mm -hmm. And now it's sourced and now it's verified. And and if anyone ever contests it, we have the audio. And so, you know, we looked at how do, how do journalists do their work today and how can we just use technology to make it a little better. Yeah. Um, and, so, and, and so, yeah, and so a lot of it's around that. And then the big thing inside of Omniscient is that we, it's all organized around facts. Yeah. So we, we encourage people to pull out facts and to source them. So if I want to write a fact about SeedCamp, I need a source that's reliable, which could be an employee or a yeah. PR firm or an authorized third party from you. Yeah. Um, and, and the way we reward that is we, we turn journalists into experts. And if, if I write the most about SeedCamp on SeedCamp's own profile on their page, which contains articles and mm. press releases and, and facts about them, uh, you're going to see expert journalists uh, and you're going to see that Liam writes some of the best stuff, which means that not only does SeedCamp be able to, can, can they show off, so yeah, here are people write about this. Built Crunchbase profile. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and likewise, journalists have the same thing. Journalists have a profile. You can see how often they confirm information before publishing it. Yeah. You can see uh, what are they an expert in, and, they can, and you can see what they like. I might be an expert in Deezer, but I really like Spotify. Yeah. And, and, we, and we allow for that idea of here's what I like to receive, and here's what I'm really good at. Yeah. That's cool. Well, I mean, we look forward to seeing that. Yeah. Out loud. And, um, 
you know, we always like to, to wrap things up with a chance to plug something that isn't necessarily the start you're working on, just maybe a charity or an initiative or an event. Maybe if you have one that's coming up, something that people would be able to, to, to learn more about. Well, I'm usually a big fan of tight bikers because um, they, they bike from Paris yeah. to London. And, I, and I've always been a huge fan. And, and I know Easy does, does amazing stuff with that. But they just wrapped up. Yeah. So maybe I, should, maybe I should plug the French ecosystem to get more involved because it's typically the London ecosystem training out to Paris and then biking back to London for charity. And so I think the big thing that I'm going to be trying to work on next year is actually Reverse getting... tech bikers. Yeah. And, and maybe either we, either we train out to London and then come back, or we meet them at the Eiffel Tower and we bike with them and then train back. That'd be great. So, I'm a big Sign me up. Sign me up. I just got my bike tuned. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> I'll bike with you next year. <laughs> All right. Can't wait. Thanks for joining us, Liam. And until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.